no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. You can be seated tonight. The title of this message and this, as we look at this passage of scripture is actually verse number 21. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Because really what, what this, this, the context of all of this is, if you remember back in verse number 8, Paul said, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And so what is he saying? He's saying, I, I, I'm warning you that there are those who are going to come and they're going to convince you uh, of, or, or try to convince you of certain doctrines that are untrue. And you need to beware lest you are spoiled by this philosophy and vain deceit that is actually against Christ. It is anti-Christ, right? That's what he says, that they would spoil you after the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. That these false doctrines and false teachings are actually in direct competition with gospel truth. And so he says, beware lest any man spoil you. I want to look down just a little bit further in verse uh, number 16, he says, let no man therefore judge you in, uh, in meat or drink or in respect of an holy day. Verse number 18, he says, let no man beguile you of your reward. The, the whole idea of this is be careful because there are a lot of philosophies and teachings out there which could get you off track in regard to the truth of who you are in Christ and what God expects from you now that you are a believer, now that you are in Christ. And so he begins to address this issue of salvation. And, and last week we even looked at uh, the illustration that, that Paul made, this concept of being circumcised, not with the circumcision made with hands, not that fleshly uh, uh, circumcision that's in the body, but rather that which is of the heart, that Christ saved us and changed us internally. And, and, and how that even may have been uh, in response to some false teaching that had crept into uh, the region there, at least in Galatia, that had crept in about the necessity of circumcision in salvation. And how they had really adopted a works-based salvation. And Paul now is saying, listen, uh, just in case anyone tries to tell you that you're not saved because you're not circumcised, you need to just turn around and tell them you are circumcised. <laughs> Not in the flesh, but in heart. That is who you are in Christ. And so he's addressing this and he's saying, listen, this is who you are in Christ. And I want you to notice verse number 13. He says, and you, this is before Christ. He says, and you, 
being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Do you remember that there was a time in your life where you were dead in your sins? When you were separated from God? When you were in bondage to sin and not able, the Bible says that not able to cease from sin? Where, the, where, where sin controlled you? Where you tried to control your life? Christ was not Lord. You were still under the bondage of sin, the guilt of sin. You carried the weight of sin. And according to the Bible, you were dead in sin. Now he says, he hath quickened you together with him. The word quicken, of course, old English word that means to be brought to life, to be revived. Did you know at the moment of salvation, that was actually when your life started? When you were born again, uh, you, that was when your life in Christ started. And we often talk about that, right? Your spiritual birthday. When did you come to Christ? When did you become a Christian? Because that was the beginning point. Uh, it wasn't something that you kind of grew into over time. It wasn't something that just kind of by osmosis happened in you. No, there was a time when you were dead and you were then regenerated. You were brought to life in Christ and you've been quickened and you are now spiritually alive if you know Christ. And he says, now you have been quickened together and he says he has forgiven you all trespasses. Boy, isn't it good to know that our sins are forgiven? I mean, we're, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. Now, now, this is great when it comes to our standing before God, right? Uh, when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood of his son. And the problem is that even though I am right with God because of Christ, oftentimes I don't live up to the expectation of others. And I don't always live up to the, other, the expectation of other Christians. And neither do you. And you know what happens sometimes in churches? We become very concerned about measuring up to the expectations of other Christians. So much so that we kind of forget about pleasing God and we start living to please man. We can become very consumed with what does so-and-so think of me and am I living up to what they think I ought to be as a child of God. And really, if we were to summarize this whole chapter, we could say basically, don't worry about pleasing men, worry about pleasing God. Close the book, we're dismissed, okay? That, that's kind of what he's saying here. Now, listen. He says that he's forgiven you all trespasses, verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. This is good news for us, folks. We often say, you know, when, when Christ died on the cross, he took my sin and, and nailed my sin to the cross. And there's a sense where that is true. Of course, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20, for instance, what does it tell us that God the Father hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that he literally became sin. He took our sin upon himself, right? Or we could look at, for instance, uh, uh, 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, which says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. Or Isaiah 53 that says that he was numbered 
among the or with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So yes, when Jesus was on the cross, our sin was on him and he was being judged for our sin. That is absolutely true. But did you know that verse number 14 actually tells us not only that our sin was nailed to his cross, but actually the very law that we had violated was nailed to his cross. Is that not what that says? Verse 14, read it again. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way. Now, do you know what the law was? The Old Testament law, the law of Moses, by which ultimately... Uh, People would be and will be judged, right? The truth that God gave. We could look back at the Ten Commandments, for instance, and understand that there was a measure of righteousness that was expected there and so many other commandments we could talk about. But, but as we consider what, what that law was, we, we could never live up to that standard, right? Right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We violated God's law. We trespassed against him and his law. That's why we are sinners. Right? What does the Bible say? Sin is the transgression of the law. We have all broken God's law. So when Christ died, he not only took upon him our sin, our, the, 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 the penalty and punishment for the violation of his law, but he actually took the law itself, the handwriting of ordinances, and there on the cross he perfectly fulfilled the law of God on our behalf to where now there isn't this thing standing between me and God, this expectation of perfection. Because Christ is that perfection and he is my mediator. And so now I have direct access to God. Jesus took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's what happened on the cross. And when you got saved, you became the beneficiary of the forgiveness of sins and freedom from the law. Isn't that great? That's exciting. Now here's what's happening. Paul is saying all of these things have happened. Jesus did all of this. But you need to be careful because there are those who would try to remove you from the position that you are in Christ and actually seek to entangle you again in this philosophy that you have to do certain things or not do other things in order to be right with God. And what they're trying to do is bring about legalism to where you have to live up to a certain standard. And, and Paul's saying, don't let anyone beguile you. Don't, don't let anyone judge you. Look what he says. Verse number 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Those, those, those things, you know, meat, food that was offered to idols, that was a big deal in the first century. There was a lot of controversy, and, and, and it would have been easy, and I know there was a lot of this going on, people saying, well, if you eat food that has been sacrificed to idols, then you're not a very good Christian, or maybe you're not even a Christian at all. And, and then... In respect to an holy day. Well, if you don't celebrate 
and, and observe this particular feast day or holy day, you're not right with God. And then probably on the other side of that, there are people who said, well, if you do celebrate or observe this holy day, you're not right with God. And notice then the last thing he says, or of the new moon or of Sabbath days. This, this continues to be a debate even today among people who claim to be Christians. And look at, what, look what he's saying. He says, don't let anyone judge you according to these things because all these things are a shadow of things to come. Do you know what the law was? The law was two things. First of all, it was a shadow. It says it, says it was a shadow. It was a, it, was a, it was a forecasting, if you will. And in the law, in the Old Testament law, first of all, you have the, the righteousness of God was revealed in it, but you also have some revelation of truth that was yet to come. The book of Hebrews actually really clearly describes the fact that as, as New Testament Christians, we spiritually have what was being represented physically in the carrying out of the Old Testament law. It's pretty fascinating. When you read all of those things that they were doing, we're picturing that which we now have in Christ. So those things were a shadow. Secondly, they were a schoolmaster. Galatians tells us that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It, ultimately, the law was that which we could never attain. What does it say in verse 14? That the, the law was contrary to us. We, we have no ability to maintain the law. And so, to think about this then, to go back to this idea that I now have to, somehow, now that I'm saved, I have to go back and try to undo all the things that I did or start doing the things that I didn't do because I have to live up to this if God's going to accept me. Jesus is saying, or, or, or Paul is saying, according to Jesus, we don't have to do that. We are complete in him, in Christ. We don't have to go back to the law. We don't have to be circumcised to be right with God. We don't have to observe certain feast days. We don't have to observe the Old Testament law. We have everything we need in Christ. And so what he's really addressing, addressing here in this section of the passage, listen very carefully, this is the danger of legalism. The danger of legalism that says, in order to be right with God, you have to do this, 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 and this. Listen, we're free from the law, folks. We're free from the law. And I want you to consider with me, if you would, that the danger of legalism, when we begin to measure our spiritual standing by the things that we do or do not do, and, and, and we've got this checklist, whether it is the Old Testament law or some uh, law that we have created in our minds, we begin teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. When we do that and we begin measuring ourselves by these benchmarks of I do this and I do this and I don't do this and I don't do this, then essentially what we are doing is we are denying the sufficiency of Christ. Think about that. For me to judge myself and my spiritual standing based upon what I do or don't do, I am denying the sufficiency of Christ that ultimately I am complete in Him and Him alone. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said that his pursuit and his desire was that he would be found in him, in Christ, not having, he said, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, 
But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He said, the pursuit that I am living for now is not in the motions and actions of my flesh. It's not in my deeds and in my works. The pursuit that I'm living for now is that I would live by the faith of the Son of God. And that in my relationship with Him that I would receive His righteousness. Or we could look, for instance, at Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1, where the Bible tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, as well as chapter 10 and verse 23, actually Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Now he went on to say, not all things are expedient, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I want you to just... Uh, just stop and think about this in case you happen to be today judging yourself or someone else and their spiritual condition or your spiritual condition on do's and don'ts that your sufficiency is to be of God and not of self. You could not save yourself. Would you agree with me? Your works could not make you right with God. Jesus had to do that, right? So why would we think then that once we receive Christ and we've embraced the gospel and we are born again, that now, okay, Lord, thank you for your grace that saved me. Now I'm going to live by works. Is that not a denial of the sufficiency of Christ in my life? Did you know Christ is sufficient not only for my salvation, but he's sufficient for my sanctification? So, so he says, don't let anyone judge you by these things. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Right? Think about this. When we measure our spiritual life and spiritual maturity by ourselves, by our own opinions... By the opinions of other people. Oh, by the way, that preacher said. Oh, this Christian over here said I should be doing this or that. When we make that the measure of our spiritual maturity, first of all, we become carnal in our thinking. We're fleshly minded. And we have replaced the lordship of Christ in our life with the lordship of men or religion. Now, I understand when I start preaching this way about the, the, the freedom that we have in Christ, that all things are lawful, that we are not under the law, that our sufficiency is of Christ and Him alone, that we are complete in Him. I understand that people start to get nervous. Because oftentimes this is preached as though what you're saying is because Christ did it all for you, now that absolves you of all responsibility and you can go out and live as freely and as carnally as you want to live and everything is just going to be okay. You have no more responsibility. And yes, that is something that is often preached and I want you to know that that's not biblical at all. Because Paul is addressing the danger of legalism, but I want to take just a moment and consider the danger of license. 
And that is this idea that just because I'm saved and I'm free and forgiven, I can do whatever and God doesn't care, that's wrong too. If legalism denies the sufficiency of Christ, hear me on this, if legalism denies the sufficiency of Christ, license denies the lordship of Christ. That is, if I am saved, if I am a child of God, I am no longer subject to the law, but I am to be a follower of Jesus. He is to be my Lord and Master. When I got saved, Christ broke a yoke from off my neck. The yoke of the bondage of sin, the yoke of the weight of guilt of my sin, and I was free. But I, but I don't want to stop there. Because when I received Christ, he replaced that yoke with a different yoke. What did Jesus say in Matthew 11, verse 28? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And then he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He didn't say you don't have a yoke anymore. He said it's easy and it's light. Because now instead of having to try and to live up to all of these different do's and don'ts and every little intricate detail of the law. No, I'm free from that. Jesus did all that for me. Now I really only have one thing that I need to be concerned about. And here's what that is. Is this pleasing to the Lord? He is my Lord. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, tells us that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. And so what God wants us to do, it's not that we have to live by all these do's and don'ts, touch not, taste not, handle not. It is, though, that we are to live by the Spirit of God and the leadership and lordship of Christ in our lives. So it's not like I can say, hey, I'm free from the law, throw this book out, and, 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 and whatever I do, I, I can do whatever I want. God's just got to be okay with it because I'm complete in Christ. No, 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 no. Throw out the law, I don't have to live by that. Not throw it out. You understand what I'm saying. I'm no longer bound by that. But I am bound by a new law. I am to live by the leadership of the Spirit of God in my life. I now have one person I am to please. And it is God. And so I want to, after we have now read the last half, of Colossians chapter 2, I want to just take a moment and read the first few verses of chapter 3. Because he talked about the, the danger of legalism, and I just addressed the danger of license, but I want to uh, begin looking in verse number 1 of chapter 3, and I want to talk to you about the design of liberty. What is it that God now expects from us as children of God? Look at verse number 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, 
where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Look at verse number 5. Mortify, therefore. That means to put to death. Your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which sake things or for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Notice he's not saying, Don't let any man judge you according to these things. The tenets of the law go out and live however you want. That's not what he said. He said, if, you, if you're risen with Christ, if you've been born again, set your affection on things above. You know the problem with the law? The problem with the law is I can't ever live up to it, but if, even if I try, I have to be so focused on all of these things, my eyes have to be right here on this earth, and I'm doing everything in my flesh to try and maintain now that I'm free from that, I have one priority. Look up. Set my affection on things above. And now I have embraced a new master. And it is the lordship of Christ in my life that matters. And so tonight as we consider these things... I told you that if we measure ourselves based upon that which we do, some external measure, we are carnal in our thinking and we have replaced the lordship of Christ in our lives with the lordship of men or religion. But I want to say to you that the true measure of our spiritual well-being is actually how surrendered we are to Christ and His will for us. In other words... If we were to give a litmus test, and, and, and this isn't really something we could ever do, but let's just say we were going to give a litmus test, and I was going to survey and say, how spiritual are you? How mature are you in your walk with God? From man's perspective, what are some things that we might put on there? How often do you read your Bible? How much time do you spend in prayer? How would you rate your faithfulness in church? Are you active in witnessing, telling others about Christ? Do you tithe and give to the work of the Lord? Are you separated from carnal, worldly forms of entertainment, music, movies? drugs, alcohol? Does your dress conform to biblical standards? And we could go on and on and on and on with a list of things that we might say, well, this is a good measure of how someone is doing spiritually. But can I tell you something? That falls short. Because in essence... Most all of those things can be done in the strength of our flesh, can't they? You can do all of those things 
and still be carnal. The real measure is this. Are you yielded and surrendered to God? Do you know what it means to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Let me give you a, an earthly example of this. If I were to say that I am a good husband because I don't beat my wife and I don't curse her out and I don't date other women, therefore I am a good husband. Can I ask you, do those things make me a good husband? I mean, if I just do, husbands, don't beat your wives, don't curse them out, don't date other women. Dismissed. No, that doesn't, that, that doesn't make you a good husband. What makes you a good husband? Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the instruction. What happens if I love my wife as Christ loved the church? I won't do any of those things anyway. And the idea is this, if you are truly right with God, it's going to take care of itself on the outside of touch not, taste not, handle not. I mean, if I'm going out and I'm indulging in all kinds of carnal, worldly things, I ought to be able to look at myself and not say, hey, I'm not right with God because I drank this beer. I'm not right with God because I listened to this music. I'm not right with God because I, 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 I said these words. No. I drank that beer and I listened to that music and I said those words because I'm not right with God. There's a difference there, folks. And what we're saying is don't try to start from the outside and, and, and judge yourself spiritually based on those things. Be right with God here and let God deal with those things. Don't let anyone judge you in regard to meat or drink or in respect to a holy day or of new moons and Sabbaths. But... If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Follow after him, pursue him, love him, yield to him. Don't replace the lordship of Christ with legalism. And don't replace the lordship of Christ with license. Yield yourself to God. And be right with him from your heart. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Amen? Let's pray.